All right. So today we're going to jump into John chapter 8. And I was a little, I was considering whether, you know, do I want to change things up from what LifeWay has uh, prescribed? And, you know, should we really study the story in the beginning of John chapter 8, which isn't in all the manuscripts? I decided, you know, that's probably a reason to study it because if you don't talk about it, then then nobody even knows what what I just said. Like, what do you mean it's not on all the manuscripts? And so that alone is really reason for us to study it. And it's a, a very familiar story that we all know about the story of the woman caught in adultery. And it does fit into the story. Sometimes it gets inserted different places in the book of John, but it always seems to fit in about right here. And we don't know who wrote verses 1 through 11. Um, we do know that it doesn't seem to show up until around 500 AD. It's many, many centuries after John wrote his gospel that the story was included. Now, it's possible, I guess, that John wrote it. And it kind of got lost and it got reinserted later on. Hey, I found this other chapter. Um, but we really don't know the story, but we just know that from that time on, around the 5th century AD, it's generally included in the Gospel of John. But older manuscripts don't seem to have it. So it's one of those rare pieces of scripture that we're not 100% sure if, if John really wrote this or not. But it is one that most people accept as, as a story of something that actually happened. It seems to fit the character of Jesus. It fits in with the story. We can understand why it's placed here. Because we see continuing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And even after the story, we go on to other stories that are of the same nature. So understand, there's a little footnote on those first 11 verses. Some Bibles will put those verses in italics. Some uh, we'll, we'll put it in a footnote. But everybody knows about this story, so we might as well talk about it. So let's talk about, first we have a woman caught in adultery, and then we have Jesus giving one of the seven great I am statements. As he says, I am the light of the world, and that's where we're getting our uh, title from today. So John chapter 8. Verse 3 through 18, we're actually getting on to two stories. So my hopes of this being a brief lesson, when I realized how much we have to talk about today, are totally dashed, but we're going to have a good time. How about that? So um, looking at, we're going to break down this, this story of the woman caught in adultery, and there's just too much good stuff there. It's just such a fascinating story. that We're going to spend some time on that. And then we'll talk about Jesus being the light of the world, and then how the Pharisees kind of, uh, push back on him for his statement and how they actually try and trap Jesus in his words later and then originally in his in his actions, which is kind of the whole idea of the story. And so it's just very interesting how the Pharisees keep trying to catch Jesus and, and catch him doing something, if not wrong, at least controversial or, or something that would maybe get him in trouble with somebody or another. And they keep failing. So as you go through the gospel, it, it almost at a, at a point becomes comical. You know, everybody trying to, to catch Jesus in something. But nobody can trip up the perfect son of God. He always seems to see it coming. So we'll talk about both of these stories and see they have a lot in common. 
as we get into it, um, as we get into the story, think about as we as this first story, what was at stake for everybody in the story? We're going to see Jesus is in the story, the Pharisees are in the story, and a woman is in the story, and each one of them has a lot at stake. And if you think about it, you realize who had the most at stake, and it wasn't Jesus or the Pharisees. So when we think about how each party came into the situation with, you know, the outcome very important to them. And then we'll talk about what it means for Jesus to be the light. How is Jesus light for us? How do we know we're standing in that light? Those are some important questions we might want to think about. But we're going to fill out an outline today. And five parts of this, although three of them coming from the first story and two from the other, as we kind of go through and we look at some motives, we look at getting personal and honest, we look at a remedy for something that I think is a really important pull away from the story of the woman caught in adultery. And then we talk about walking life's path and we talk about Jesus and is he a valid testimony and that's the whole issue the Pharisees are going to raise as we get into verse 13 and 14. Let's start off with John chapter 8, verse 3 through 6. And I'm going to start off halfway through verse 6. I'm going to split it into two because that seems like a good division there. All right. So um, starting in verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So John is giving us, you know, what you might have already picked up on, that the Pharisees were not asking this um, Sincerely, they were not asking this um, out of curiosity, but they really did want to trap Jesus in this situation so that no matter which way he chose, he was going to get in trouble with somebody. So let's talk about this. What was at stake for Jesus in this situation? Well, he, once again, as we've seen, and we see this on many feast days, I don't have a context for a particular time in this story, but there he is. He's in the temple courts, and he is teaching. This could have been the same setting as chapter 7. not entirely sure. But he is teaching in public, and they just kind of interrupt him, don't they? They just kind of, that's what we see in verse 1 and 2 that we didn't read, that he's in the temple courts teaching, and they suddenly in the middle of his teaching, or maybe they wait for him to take a breath, and they come and they interrupt him. All right? As a teacher, I can tell you interruptions happen sometimes. You just kind of have to go with it. Well, now, I don't know that Jesus was surprised, because this is Jesus after all. He doesn't get caught by surprise, but he knew what was going on as they came. And they brought this woman, and they are correct that when they said, listen, this woman was caught we know that she was committing adultery, and the law of Moses says she has to be killed. That The death penalty was the punishment for adultery in Israel. That was the law of Moses. That's exactly what it said. So 
they're not lying. So why are they bringing this to Jesus at this time? Um, you know, remember, we've already picked up on the fact that these Pharisees, and they were one of the religious parties among the Jewish religious leaders, they had already been frustrated and embarrassed by Jesus, hadn't they? They've tried to complain that he healed such and such a person on the Sabbath day, and he wasn't following all of their regulations on how they thought the Sabbath day ought to be um, respected, and they had all their rules about what it meant to be a good Jew that they had added on since Moses on their own. God did not give them those rules. And Jesus is doing what God wants him to do, and it's there's this friction between they want we want you to do what we want you to do. And Jesus is, well, Jesus has the, the boldness, the audacity to do what God wants done instead of what people want done. And so the friction with the powers that be that we've talked about. So this is kind of explains their motivation on why they're trying to catch Jesus. So how are they going to catch Jesus? Well, basically, they're trying to put Jesus in this situation where either... He agrees to stone the woman who is clearly guilty of a crime. Now, how's that going to play with the crowds? Probably a mixed reaction. Some people, well, she's a troublemaker and she deserves it, but, but now you're killing a woman. That's maybe not going to be super popular. Um, so that maybe risks his popularity a little bit. Um, and, and, but that's not really why they did it. The reason they did it from what I can gather is, remember that the Jews were not in charge of their own nation. Who's in power over the Jews at this time? The Romans. Now you remember in the crucifixion story that the Jews had to go to Pontius Pilate for permission to have Jesus killed. They did not have the authority to do capital punishment on their own. They did not have the authority to kill someone, even if someone was guilty under the law of Moses, they had to pass that off to the Romans. The Romans were in charge of justice. The Romans were the power. So they could not just say, okay, you're guilty of, of death and we're going to sentence you. They had to get permission from the Romans. So if Jesus had agreed to this, and here's this crowd here, and if the crowd had said, yes, let's, let's, you're the Messiah, and let's do what Moses said to do, no matter what the Romans think. And if this woman had been stoned by a mob as a result of this conversation, Jesus, then the, the leaders could go to the Roman and say, well, here's this Jesus, this troublemaker. He just made this right and had a woman killed. Without you asking you, Jesus could have gotten in trouble with the Romans. And I think that's what they were going for here. They wanted Jesus to say, yes, we're going to do what Moses said, regardless of what anybody else thinks, and to try and get him in trouble with the Romans. So they were trying to make, have him make a political misstep with the Romans. Now that's if he said, yes, we need to do what Moses said and follow the law. Now if Jesus doesn't say, yes, we need to do what Moses said, now they can say it's almost like saying a politician is soft on crime and trying to beat him when the election comes up, right? It's like, oh, he doesn't really believe. He can't really be the Messiah because he doesn't really want to follow the law of Moses. So they're trying to put the situation where either he says yes and gets in trouble with the Romans, or he says no and he kind of gets in trouble with the people because I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were going to lead us 
back to God, and now you're saying not to follow the law. And suddenly, the Pharisees would finally have the higher ground, moral ground on Jesus if he would say, no, we're not really going to follow the law. Like, already they're bickering about the Sabbath, but but he, but Jesus was explaining, yeah, you wouldn't leave your leave your sheep in, in, the, in the pit on the Sabbath day. This is just common sense. I'm not violating the Sabbath at all. So they were looking for something that might actually stick, and they might actually have something to say about Jesus. So they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him to make a decision, and no matter what he picks, they want to see if they can use it against him. Well, Jesus wasn't falling for their trap. Jesus wasn't about to either answer either way. You've noticed sometimes in the scriptures that Jesus, he always controls the conversation. And there's a lesson in that. People try and get you into or choose this or this, and so what sometimes they call a straw man argument or a or a, a false dichotomy, there's other things we say in logic where someone tries to make you pick between this or this, and neither one is what you really believe. And sometimes we do have to make sure we control the conversation. Say, no, I'm not saying that or that. I'm just saying that this is what I believe the scripture says. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't allow them to dictate the terms of the conversation. So as we go on here, he says, look, here's what we're going to do. We... Instead of answering their question in verse 5, he kind of ignores them. What does Jesus begin to do here? Starts riding on the ground. Starts riding on the ground. Now, I wasn't, it's not recorded for us what he wrote. We're left to speculate. And again, this is the story where we're not even sure whether this came from John or not, but we. We have the story of Jesus writing on the ground, and it's a little mysterious what's going on here. But one thing you notice is he didn't answer the question. But he didn't resume teaching either. He went and did this as kind of a silent response to the situation they had presented to him. And so he's writing on the ground with his finger. Now, this word for ground, it turns out um, that it is a word that means soil. It's not a word that means stone, and we'll come back to that. So understand, he's not, and you're thinking this is at the temple, right? So maybe this is like, you know, cobblestone, or there's a stone foundation, and they're walking on this beautiful temple, and, and he's just having to trace with his finger maybe in the dust. But it seems like this is in, in the courts of the temple where there's ground. And that's what this is indicating. Writing on the ground with his finger, there would have been soil there. In fact, if you look at this area, this is the court of the Gentiles is on the other side of the Wailing Wall. And if you look at it today, there's trees there. Okay, So this is not a place that there's a stone foundation where Jesus would not have been able to get to actual earth. So we think that he's actually able to trace out letters here in the dirt. All right. So as far as I can tell, he's writing something that they could literally read, but we're not told what he's writing. OK. And we did actually stop right before that. So we'll move back into that in just a minute. Got a little bit ahead there, but it's an interesting story. So they're trying to accuse him. And I do want to just refer back to as many verses we could go back to that. Again, the Pharisees weren't wrong about this. The law said. There is an aspect I want to talk about here in a second, but 
one example, you see many verses that are, that are listed. By the way, I listed John chapter 7, verse 19 from last week. Remember what Jesus said to the crowd? None of you follow the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And it was really a question addressed towards the Pharisees. Like, since you don't follow the law, why are you trying to kill me for healing on the Sabbath day? Why are you so upset with me? You don't follow the law. So here it is. They're trying to ask Jesus, say, here's what the law says. You have to do this. Uh, but, it, but again, and of course, what they're really saying, and who's this woman who didn't follow the law, right? And according to the law, she should be punished. But notice it says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's what is in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. And also you see it again in Deuteronomy. Um, there's a couple verses here in Deuteronomy. And of course, the command not to commit adultery in Exodus chapter 20. But notice that aren't they both supposed to get in trouble? Where's the guy? He was too fast and, and, and the Pharisees are out of shape and they couldn't catch him. He ran out. Why is it just the woman being brought to Jesus? So that seems like already this this is this is not about justice, is it? This is about some kind of publicity stunt. And maybe it wouldn't look bad for Jesus to kill the the guy, but to kill the woman, maybe maybe that's gonna turn the crowds against him. Maybe that was part of, of this. I don't know. You think they're testing him to see what he did? They're definitely testing. Well, but they want him to fail the test. It's not a test to see. They don't think he's the Messiah. So they're not asking him to prove himself. They're trying to embarrass him because they want to have the upper hand. They want to be in control. And this Jesus is a threat to them. They're seeing him as a political threat. And so that's why they're putting him on this. They're trying to have, they want him to trip up if, we, if this was a democracy so they could win the election. Right? They want him to make a mistake. So they can win this, this political battle. And so they bring only the woman, even though both of them are supposed to be brought to justice. So this is not about justice. It doesn't, it doesn't, something's off about this whole situation, isn't it? But again, it's motivated. And Jesus already said, you're trying to kill me. And here they're trying to trap, trap, get him trapped, trip him up so that they can have some power over him. And their ultimate goal is to eliminate their political enemy by whatever means necessary. They're already beginning to move in that direction. But we can see, you know, it is true. That is the Old Testament, you know, system that partly to keep the people on the straight and narrow, there were these harsh penalties for sin. And this is the situation the woman is in. She's in a dire situation. The stakes for her are literally life and death, aren't they? According to the law, she should be put to death and Jesus should just say yes. That's what the scripture says. But we'll come back to that in a moment as we continue. So now we see, first of all, this confrontation and that Jesus, he knew not to trust the motives. We also, as we look at it, we realize, you know, the motives were not pure. They were not about justice. We need to inspect their motives and see that they were really out for themselves. They were trying to use this woman for their own political purposes, weren't they? She was just a victim. They weren't trying for people. They didn't want people to be sexually pure. They just wanted a chance to get Jesus in trouble. And they were willing to, to send this woman to the death penalty to do it. All right, so that's the situation. The woman's life is in danger. 
they're trying to score political points, and Jesus has to be very careful how he handles this situation, but he is. So let's see what he does as he begins to turn the tables on these Pharisees in the next couple of verses. And in verse 6b through 8, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger like we already began to talk about. That was his response. He wasn't going to humor their false charges and their wayward motives. Now, they, in verse 7, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. And that's a phrase you remember from the story, isn't it? The first without sin, let him be the first one to throw a stone. He wasn't denying the law of Moses, but he was saying, okay, if you, as you correctly identified, want to carry out the law of Moses here, then, well, someone has to throw the first stone, so just give me someone who's perfect and sinless so they can start the proceedings. And suddenly, what I see Jesus doing here is he's shifting the focus from the accused to the accusers. Remember how Jesus already made that comment in chapter 7, you guys don't follow the law. Mm-hmm. And suddenly he's making them confront that truth. You want to condemn this woman for what she did wrong, but are you doing right? What happens when you stand before the judge? Will you come out clean, or are you going to have to suffer the penalty for your own sin as well? And he brings this right to them. So Jesus says, the one without sin should be the first. And he resumes writing. So let's talk about it. What could he be writing? There's a lot of ideas been presented, and they're all kind of interesting, but um, one, one thought, that I, one I remember hearing is that maybe Jesus wrote down the Ten Commandments into the ground. Do not murder. If they're already basically guilty, they're trying to kill Jesus. Do not steal. Did he write all those commands from Exodus chapter 20 on the ground? And We'll see as we continue the story here how they react to it, that we maybe get some clues that that whatever Jesus wrote had an effect on them. Um, I was thinking it could even be the great commandments. He could have just written the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and strength. And he could have written um, love your neighbor as yourself, which I'm not sure they're doing as they're dragging this woman and embarrassing her and and trying to get her, you know, killed for her crime. Not sure she's treating her very neighborly, even though they're doing the correct thing according to the law. So maybe Jesus wrote something like that. But another idea people have presented is maybe Jesus wrote their names. Think about that. And let's take a look at something here. I want to share a couple of, of stories with you. But here I thought that the the great commandment fit in. First of all, that, um, and remember, this was something that came up in Matthew's gospel. And it was these same Pharisees that were coming up to him. And one of them had the guts to ask him a question. But, of course, it wasn't a question for information. Notice, once again, it's the same theme, right? They're trying to test him. They're trying to catch him in his words. And so they ask him a tough question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Remember what he said? 
what we just quoted, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And those are out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19, as you see right there. So that Jesus knew that was kind of the heartbeat of the law. That's what God wanted. God wanted us to love him and to serve him and to obey him. And then to treat others right. We even talked about that when we went back and studied the, the history of Israel, right? That was the biggest problem God had is that they weren't treating each other well. They were stealing from each other and killing each other out on, in, on the roads and ambushing each other. And all these terrible things were happening in the nation. And that's why God most of all objected to the way they were living. And here Jesus bringing those same truths to them, perhaps. Now, another interesting thought that I mentioned a second ago was maybe he wrote their names. Imagine if you come up and you're part of a kind of an anonymous mob. And you come up and you, you, you put someone on the spot and you, you demand something of them. Okay. <clears throat> Would it be even better? Yeah. What, what if you got pulled over for a traffic stop and the cop already knew your name? Now, if you recognize them too, oh, hey, friend, you know, it, it's awkward, but you understand at least why they knew your name. So what if Jesus started writing down the names of every Pharisee who had brought the woman to him? First of all, they'd be amazed. How does he know who I am? And second of all, suddenly it would shift the focus to them. And the reason some people have presented for why Jesus might have been doing that is this verse out of Jeremiah chapter 17. Where Jeremiah wrote, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Well, what's Jesus doing? He's writing in the earth. He could have been writing their names and could have been fulfilling the scripture from Jeremiah. I'm not completely convinced, but it's, it's a fascinating thing. And again, think the effect would be if he started listing their names and making a roster of everyone who had brought this woman to him and suddenly there they are publicly identified not part of an anonymous mob anymore and suddenly they're the ones who brought this woman potentially to her death and they're having to answer for their actions something along those lines may have happened here a lot of interesting thoughts what jesus might have written but the main thing is the effects were very, very clear. And we'll see in these next verses that these gentlemen decide maybe they shouldn't hang around. Let's take a look at the next section here as we get into verse uh, 9 to 11. Oh, and let's point this out. Jesus turns the tables and we see introspection begin to happen. So these men... They had their political objective, and they wanted to make an argument, and they wanted to make Jesus look bad. But Jesus insisting that they personally and honestly consider some things. He's giving them this awkward silence. They have to think about what they're doing. This woman that they dragged up to Jesus, and the things that Jesus is writing, and suddenly this awkward silence becomes a time where they have to deliberate and consider what they're doing. And that's what Jesus is putting on. So he's insisting, before we do this, gentlemen, 
Take a moment to think in this awkward silence as I write these things on the ground about what you're doing right now. All right? I feel like my mom just put me in timeout or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? It's like Jesus just put these men in timeout. Let's consider this and consider it personally. And we're going to see, remember, and it wasn't that a personal statement he made? The one without sin among you should be first to throw the stone. So think about it. Are you the sinless one who should throw the first stone? And suddenly the focus is shifted on themselves and they're having to be all way too honest with themselves and think about themselves instead of this girl. Now, the beautiful part of the end of the story, let's move on to verse 9. Here, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left, meaning Jesus, with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on do not sin anymore. You remember that ending of the story there. Um, Jesus ends up finding a way to spare the woman without violating the law of Moses. And what he does is he lets them walk away one at a time. Notice who left first. Older men. Older men. Why do you think the older men might have been the first ones to walk away and not throw a stone? <laughs> they were old men and made a lot of mistakes. I think that's what it is, right? When we're young, we think we can do no wrong. We always, but time brings wisdom. We realize maybe that wasn't the best decision. Um, and and they have that advantage of time to realize, you know, when I haven't lived a perfect life, I've made my mistakes. Maybe this woman deserves a second chance, too. Maybe they were thinking about the woman and some compassion creeped in, but I think mo mostly they realized they did not meet the standard of being the one to throw the first stone. And in shame, they had to walk away. They could not be the judge of a fellow sinner because they, too, were sinners. And what I see here is Jesus actually is showing us how there can be an escape from condemnation. Do you see the gospel in this story? I don't know about you, but when it comes to the law, my situation was just as hopeless as this woman was. Guilty as charged. And the judge could have said, lock him up. He deserves it. Guess who the judge is? It wasn't the Pharisees. Aren't we glad? Who's left standing before the woman now? Jesus is the judge. Jesus, the compassionate son of God, is the dispenser of God's justice. But there is not only justice before the Lord. There is also mercy. And this woman escaped condemnation because she found the mercy of Christ. And it's the same for anyone who comes to God with faith for salvation, isn't it? And in fact, my standing, escaping condemnation, 
is no better than this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and was guilty before God and yet escaped that condemnation. Because Jesus said, where are your accusers? No one could stand before the words of Jesus to accuse the woman. And as they wandered off, first the older men, and finally every single man had to walk away. No one even picked up a stone. Because they didn't have the grounds. Whatever Jesus wrote on the ground convinced them they did not have the standing to condemn this woman. None of us do. Although we'll pick up a stone and we'll throw one on social media sometimes and we'll be quick to criticize someone and we'll yeah, I can't believe so-and-so did that. But when we get before the Lord, it's not about anybody else anymore, is it? We have to reflect on our standing with God and realize we don't deserve to be forgiven our sins. We're not sinless. We don't have the right to go to heaven based on our body of work over our lifetime. None of us can live a perfect life except for Jesus. And our only hope of heaven is for Jesus to say, well, what did he say? Neither do I condemn you. It's only by the mercy of Lord that any of any of us can stand before God. Only by his mercy can we do so. And that's what this woman found, and that's what Jesus demonstrated to this crowd. Yes, she deserves punishment, but I'm going to dispense mercy. Mercy is, um, we talk about grace, which is receiving undeserved favor, but mercy is different, isn't it? Mercy is the withholding of deserved punishment. You deserve the punishment. You're guilty, but you're not going to be punished. That sentence is going to be not eliminated because justice demands that punishment is paid. But who is ultimately going to pay the price of this woman's sin? Jesus himself is going to go to the cross, and he's going to pay the price. The penalty will be paid, but it's going to be paid by Jesus, and Jesus is foreshadowing the cross. That's what he's doing here. So mercy is found. The Pharisees wanted to weaponize Moses' law, use it as a political tool, and it didn't matter that this woman was going to pay the price. She deserved it anyway, right? The floozy, the whatever, you, you know, they had some kind of disparaging name for this woman caught in adultery how dare she but they were just as much sinners as she was and Jesus made them see it and he said go now Jesus is not condoning adultery here you can see it by the last line he says do not sin anymore that's what we have recorded here as best we know the story he wasn't saying Oh, you got off. Just go ahead and have fun with your boy. You know, just go ahead and keep fooling around. No, he's saying, I'm not going to condemn you, even though you deserve to be condemned. She's probably scared to death. By the way, she might have been dragged out naked in front of the crowd. That might be another reason why Jesus was doodling in the dirt. To avoid looking at the woman, not just to not be lustful, but to not embarrass her. Do her a favor of not staring at her like the crowd was, because she was very embarrassed, right? She knew what she had done wrong. 
But what a powerful thing for Jesus to do. Aren't you glad that when we stand before the judge, if it's the Jesus we believed in, he's going to say, he was guilty, but I have paid his punishment. I have paid her punishment, and she is free and clear, paid in full. You don't owe a thing. Wouldn't it be great if you got to the restaurant today and you went to pay the bill? Sorry, it's already been paid. Have a great afternoon. I guess they wouldn't really apologize. They wouldn't say sorry, right? They say, well, sir, um, your lunch was paid. Someone just walked out of the door and they paid your bill. So you don't owe me a thing. That's what Jesus does for us when we face God's justice. Yes, you owed something, but it's been paid. You're free and clear. Have a nice day. And that's what Jesus did for this lady. And that is the thing of the story. So what she found was escape from condemnation. And we ought to be able to relate to that as believers. It rings true with the character of Jesus. And consider this. In Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote the following. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that me and you? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law of Moses was never going to make us righteous. Only Jesus could set us free from that condemnation, fill us with his spirit so we could live for him, not in fear that I'm going to mess up and I'm going to have to, to pay the penalty for my sin, but to set us free to serve him without the fear of condemnation, without the fear of punishment. And that's what Christ came to do, isn't it? Can't we all relate to this story? We're all just as guilty and every much a political pawn as this woman was, but Christ has set us free. So Jesus is showing us this is the remedy for condemnation. My forgiveness. So investigate. And in the story we see Jesus is showing us the gospel, which is the remedy for condemnation. I can set you free from sin. I can set you free from sin's penalty. Only I can do it. And he did that for this lady. So we see there's confrontation around us. Watch the motives. There's consideration to be made. And if we're honest and personal with God, we're as guilty as this woman ever was. And only by the grace of God can we stand before him. But we can because Christ provided for us the remedy for condemnation. And from here, now we finally talk about Jesus being the light of the world. But it's really the same story in a lot of ways. That's why this story fits so well here. Let's move on to verse 12. I went ahead and put verse 13 on the screen as well. And here's what it says. Jesus spoke to them again. And here we're talking about the crowd that was there. The Pharisees, they kind of did wander off at this point, right? All that's left is Jesus, the woman in the crowd, who may have just witnessed this situation. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. What an amazing 
story. What an amazing aspect of Jesus. Now, when Jesus says, I am, remember what God said to Moses? I am that I am. When they ask me my name, tell them I am sent them. I am is the name of God. Very significant. Anytime Jesus says, I am, whatever follows, and he did that seven times, as many of you know, there's seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John. And this is the first of them, I believe, that we get to as we go through chapters of John in order. Because I am the light of the world. Let's talk about what Jesus was telling them. That here, this may not be the first, was I am the bread was before, wasn't it? This is the second one. I forget about bread, so I just get hungry again. I forgot all about bread. All right, so he said, I am. That was back in, in that prior chapter. Was it chapter five? Did he know? You taught that, right? Yeah, four. Yeah, I'd be really embarrassed if I taught that lesson. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, we already did. I am the bread of life. And now we're here. I am the light of the world. So the second of the seven. Um, so let's, what is he saying? What is he saying here? He's saying that. First of all, notice he says, anyone who follows me, it seems to be who this light's available for. And then he talks about never walking in darkness, and then he talks about having the light of life. So let's break that down. Now here I've, I've got for you, so the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself, your testimony is not valid. So already the Pharisees are back and challenging him again. The ones who brought the woman have left, maybe they came back, Maybe this is a, a different, you know, setting, but there are still critics in the crowd, and we'll talk more about where they're going with this. But Jesus says, "I'm the light of the world," and they're saying, "Your testimony's not valid." And we're going to see how this shakes out in just a second. But anyone who follows me, as we talked about, as we follow Jesus by faith, we receive the forgiveness of sins, we receive the Holy Spirit, we begin to follow Him. There's a change in our life. That old song, when Jesus came into my heart, right? The change has been wrought. And so this one symbol the scriptures use in Jesus himself using it here is going from darkness to light. Isn't that a beautiful picture? When we're in darkness, even our house becomes a dangerous place, doesn't it? You may trip over something that we forgot. Oh, why did I leave that jug of water there? Ouch. Or, oh, I thought I was clear of that of the, the table. But now I got this bruise on my leg that says I wasn't clear of the table. I ran right into it. Even our own house can be a dangerous place in the dark during a blackout or during the night. But turn the lights on and everything gets easier to navigate. Well, the fact is the Pharisees were living their life in the dark. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So if you don't have Jesus, you don't have light. And we have to keep this in mind as we look at a world that's getting darker every day. It's because as people stop following Jesus and start making up their own mind about what they're going to believe is right and wrong and who they're going to follow themselves usually, then they are stumbling in darkness. And we see more and more problems in our society and our world, don't we? Well, that's what happens when you choose darkness over light. Now, if we know Jesus, we have light, and we can see, okay? And it's just like in that movie, like, don't open that door. That we can see the bad decisions coming, 
but we can't do anything about it, right? It's this helpless feeling. We see people making bad decisions and mistakes because they don't know better. And the fact is that woman who committed adultery didn't make a good decision, right? She needed to make better decisions, and she almost lost her life over it. So here Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the light of the world. I will guide you in the right way to go. I'll help you see the right way to navigate. I am the light of the world. Now, does it mean we'll... Now he says, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness. So there'll always be light. And I get this image of maybe you have to walk through a dark place, but you have light with you, right? You have the flashlight, you have the torch as you walk through this dark place. And remember what, what David said, as he said in that beautiful Psalm 23, though I walk where? Through the valley of the shadow of death. The shadows are there. But guess what? You can't have shadows without light, can you? This familiar, the last part of it, because it was already, it's already small giving half the psalm. So I didn't want to make it too tiny. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The presence of Christ, he is our light. Even when we go into dark places, as we live in a dark world that seems to have forsaken right and wrong, and where people are mean to each other and use people like these Pharisees tried to use. So even religious people may be displaying this meanness and the self-centeredness as Jesus was seeing in his day as he walked the earth in his ministry. But he comforts us. And what more, isn't this ironic as we think about this psalm in light of the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees? Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Isn't that Jesus is right there in the middle of his enemies, right? Constant flack, constant criticism. Don't worry when the world doesn't approve of what you're doing. You just keep following Jesus' marching orders. Because he's right there with you and he'll seat you a lovely lunch right in the middle of your enemies. You keep being faithful to him. That's what David said. Remember, David had a tough life. Jesus is having uh, difficulties in opposition in his ministry. Don't think that it's going to be easy street just because you follow the Lord. We should know better by now, shouldn't we? There's going to be, there's going to be trials and storms and difficulties, but we continue to be faithful. And for you, I would say in this class, finish strong. Finish with faithfulness. Let everyone know that so the your last day, whether that's a decade or two or three or four away, however long you continue to walk this journey, that you did it faithful to the end. And that people can see she was faithful, he was faithful, and Christ was with me. And even when people opposed what they were doing, God set him down at a table in the presence of his enemies. God's favor was on that person. That's how I want to go out. How about you? Mm -hmm. Faithful with the Lord's favor. And surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Does that sound like someone who's escaped condemnation and serving the Lord in freedom? And that's what God has for us. Jesus says, I'm the light. I'm the light of the world. Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
So we need to get our eyes off the critics and onto Jesus. He's the light. He'll illuminate the path that we need to follow. But more than that, he's also the light of life. He shows us the path to eternal life and forgiveness, just like this woman learned the escape from condemnation. And he, of course, is going to go and die on the cross so that we can have that forgiveness. All right, so Christ has come to be the light of the world, so he's going to illuminate the path for us. Even if we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, he illuminates the path through life's challenges, and he gets us through them. So there's confrontations, expect, inspect the motives. There's consideration, insist on personal honesty. There's condemnation, but investigate the remedy found in the gospel. There's challenges, but trust Christ to eliminate the path through them. And one last thing to do is we just briefly look at this conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus about what he just said. Critics are amazing, right? You can say anything, and they'll find something wrong with it, won't they? He says, I'm the light of the world. They say, you can't testify about yourself. That's basically what they're saying. Let's get into the rest of the story here. Jesus replies back to them. We've already seen in verse 13 that they say, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. They're actually trying to turn Jesus' own words against him. Let's see how Jesus responds to this. Verse 14. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true, because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. If I do judge, my judgment is true, because I am not alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Well, they really were trying to get Jesus in trouble for what he had said back in chapter 5. Back in chapter 5, we'll take a look at this in a minute. Jesus said himself, well, if I speak by my alone, if I'm the only one who's speaking, my testimony is not valid. Now, that's just one thing he said out of context there. We'll look at everything Jesus said back in chapter 5 and refresh ourselves on those verses here in just a second. But it is true, Now I'm sure when they brought this woman in adultery, there were more than two witnesses there. And that was always the rule, right? And the reason for that in the Old Testament, right, one person can make up a story, but getting two witnesses to agree on a story that makes it much more likely that story was true, and it's not a lie or a trick trying to get somebody in trouble, but it really is a valid testimony. And so the Jews were saying, you don't have a second witness, you're just talking, and we don't have to listen to anything you say because there's no two witnesses. So that's what they're trying to say. Now, if we go and look at the verses, that was actually only when you testified for a crime. They were kind of expanding it beyond that. But Jesus said, guess what? I do have two witnesses. And guess who my other witness is? God the Father. You can't see him. Well, because you're in the darkness. You don't even know about God. But also, you know what's true about God? Can God lie? <clears throat> so if God's your witness, do you even need two witnesses? Isn't he enough? God himself would be 
he'd be the exception to the rule. You need two people or one God to be witness. And God's witness, you know it's true. Like, case over, right? God cannot lie. Moreover, Jesus is God. Jesus can't lie either. So there's a lot of reasons the rule for two witnesses don't even apply to Jesus if this was a criminal proceeding, which it isn't. They're just criticizing him. So let's take a look at this here. Uh, this is what John said back in John chapter 5. He said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay? So even there, he was saying, my judgment is just. Like, what I decide is always on target. And then in verse 31, back in chapter 5, he said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What he, he's not saying is not, he's not saying he's lying, he's saying it's not valid. That's what that not true. It's not admissible. He's admitting, if I was the only one saying it, that would not be admissible evidence. But, what they're not quoting him on is verse 32, where he said, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. And what's happening in John chapter 8, he's finally identifying who the second witness is. You can think of it as the Holy Spirit, but he's identifying in, in chapter 8, it's God the Father. The one I came from, he knows I'm telling the truth. You got a problem with what I'm saying? Go ask Daddy. He knows I'm not lying. He can back me up. So that's what he's telling to them, and he kind of turns this whole thing on their head. You think I don't have two witnesses? Guess what? I have the best witness anybody could ever have. God the Father vouching for me. So as we look at this last part of the story, just to recognize, why do we believe the words of Jesus? That's a really important question. Because you need to not just believe it for yourself, but be able to convince somebody else why you believe what the Gospels say. Well, here's a reason. Jesus is saying, look, I came from heaven. I came from God the Father, and God the Father sent me the one who can never lie. And you, if you find God, you're going to find me. And if you find me, you're going to find God. And that's a theme throughout the book of John we'll see develop further. But remember verse 18, I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So argue with me at your own peril, Jesus says, because you're arguing with God. Pharisees, and I don't think you're going to win that argument. And that's what I need the world to see. If you argue with the scriptures, if you argue with the revelation of Jesus Christ, you are just wasting your time arguing with God, and you are never going to be right. And if I have the word of God on my side, and I am not like the Pharisees twisting and trying to use for my own gain, but if I'm just sharing the truth, I don't have to worry about losing the argument. God hasn't changed his mind about things, has he? The truth is still truth. Jesus is still the only way to heaven. And if we follow him, rewards are still great, awaiting us. Be faithful and know that he is the light. So as we wrap things up here, we need to identify that Jesus' claims are valid. We need to understand that everything Jesus said about himself, about God, about the nature of our world is true. And we need to know why we can believe that. Because any, if we drift away from what Jesus said, we drift into error. Not everything Jesus said was, is popular today, but we need to stand on it. Because that's truth, and anything that departs from truth is error, isn't it? Know what Jesus said and know why we can believe it. Because he's the only one who's ever been to heaven. 
if we're going to believe what anybody has to say about God, we should believe him. I could tell you all about Niagara Falls, but I've never been there, so you should take it with a grain of salt. I probably saw it on some webpage somewhere, and I probably don't really know what I'm talking about. But if you come back from Niagara Falls, you tell me all about it. Or if I go, I'll tell you all about it. It'll be an eyewitness account, and you can believe me. We can believe Jesus when he tells us about God because he's an eyewitness. He came from heaven. He was sent by heaven to save us, to bring us back to heaven. That's the gospel. Stand on it and be faithful to it. All right. Um, next week, we move into John chapter 9 and then John chapter 10. It's really hard to follow, but we're going 8, 9, 10. So that's what's coming up. A really great story. I'm a little jealous, but Brother Ken gets to talk about the man who was born blind and a fantastic story there in John chapter 9. So good for you, brother. That'll be good. All right. Good to have you with us this morning. Let's pray and be dismissed. Lord, thank you that you are the light of the world. Shine your light and open our eyes. Let us be humble. Let's not think that we're good people and other people are bad people, Lord. We need to come before you honestly and humbly and just admit to you, Lord, I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I've sinned. I've made mistakes. I've made terrible decisions. I don't measure up to God's standard of righteousness. I'm so glad that you came and you died on the cross and you lived the perfect life that none of us could so that we could be forgiven and we could be made right with God. It is the only way for us to escape condemnation. Thank you for that reminder. Let us never be those religious people who try and use people for their own purposes, O oh Lord. May keep me far from that. Keep me humble and recognize I'm just another sinner who gets to go to heaven because of what you did on the cross. You are the light. Shine your light in our lives so we can help rescue people from darkness. And Lord, we can trust you and follow you. You came from the Father. And we look forward to the day that we get to see you face to face. Until then, Lord, help us serve you faithfully. And we ask you to bless this lesson. May these words reverberate in our heart and carry us through the coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott.